Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And we are talking today about interracial marriage because earlier this year in 2012, the Pew Center for Research uh, released a study uh, talking about how interracial marriage is at an all-time high in the United States. And this is something also that a topic that a number of listeners have requested for a while now. And we decided, hey, it's high time. We talk about this. Yeah. And I think the most interesting thing about this topic, and I was telling Kristen this before we started recording, actually, is that you can look at this from a historical perspective all the way up through now, that the rise in interracial marriage is really linked to the broader nature of race relations in general, society as as things, not just interracial marriage, as a lot of things in society become more accepted, obviously, they become more popular. That seems to be common sense. But you can definitely track that as more people have an open attitude about people of different races and ethnicities marrying each other, it happens more often. Right. And that also is going to be linked to the uh, constitu- the constitutionality of interracial marriage in the landmark case of Loving versus Virginia. But first, let's go way back and talk about... Um, what uh, what led to initially the crackdown on interracial sex, which was that was the first main concern back in colonial days in the United States. And apologies to international listeners. This is very U.S. centric. But um, I think there's still a lot of lessons that can be get, that can be taken from this. So going back um, in time uh, and this is referencing a paper written by Aaron Gullickson, published in the Journal of Family History in July 2006, and he looks at interracial sex versus interracial marriage and also the concomitant rise of anti-miscegenation statutes. So when people started first coming over to the New World back in the 17th century, um, white indentured servitude was just as commonplace as black slavery for the most part. That... That does turn, obviously, where indentured servitude uh, from whites falls by the wayside. But during that time, when they were side by side, slave owners had this big fear that indentured servants who were white might band together with black slaves in open rebellion. So there was all that there was this big push to keep them separate and that if they had sex, if they had any type of relationship developed, any any sort of um, allied relationship that they would turn against the elite white class. Yeah, and that was the origin of those first statutes that we have saying, hey, whites and blacks, no uh, no sex, no, and certainly no marriage. But then uh, Aaron Gullickson goes on to trace a decline in interracial marriage and interracial sex in places where interracial marriage would not have been legal from 1880 to 1930, along with the growth of Jim Crow laws in the post-Civil War South and racial segregation that is happening in the North. And then from 1930 to 1940, 
for a little window of time, there's actually an increase in interracial relationships because of the waning of that Jim Crow system. And then from there, once we hit the civil rights era and beyond, there has been a steady exponential growth that gets us up to 2012 to where we have it at an all-time high. Right, but to go back to that civil rights era, there was an excellent article in the Harvard Crimson in 1963 that American racism rests upon social practice but is, quote, strongly bulwarked by many state and local laws. And so they talk about how this anti-miscegenation legislation most directly protects, quote, racial integrity. All of these fears about what happens if you get people from different races having children. Right, because obviously like the the days of slavery are long gone, but there's still so much racial and racist tensions going on between uh you know, especially coming from white lawmakers who who want to keep the races separate. I mean, this is the era, too, of in 1963, when this article is being written, it's only been 10 years since Brown versus Board of Education, which struck down that separate but equal clause. It said, hey, you know, it's fine if we, you know, we can just maintain our own spaces. We don't need to really hang out together, right? Um, but then on June 12th, 1967, the Supreme Court finally declared uh, anti-miscegenation laws to be unconstitutional, essentially banning or prohibiting blacks and whites or people from any races from marrying each other. Uh, they said it cannot, can't happen anymore, United States. Right, and yeah, this is Loving v. Virginia, which Kristen mentioned. Um, this was, this was an amazing case because this was, these were two people who loved each other who had to leave Caroline County, Virginia to go to Washington, D.C. to get married because that's where it was legal. So in 1958, Richard, who was white, and Mildred, who was black, go to D.C. to get married. When they return to Virginia, they are promptly arrested, jailed, and banned from the state for 25 years for violating the state's Racial Integrity Act. There's those words again, racial integrity. And I would be curious to know whether or not it might have had the, the, swiftness with which the Lovings were arrested. I wonder if it also had something to do with the fact that they got married because they found out, too, that Mildred was pregnant. And so there's that old fear that comes up again. It's not so much of uh, people having sex, but more marriage and procreation. Um, And so once they are banned from the state... In 1963, obviously, they they want to return home. They want to be able to go back to Caroline County, but they don't know what to do. And so Richard Loving actually writes a letter to then-Attorney General Robert Kennedy asking whether or not there's anything with the Civil Rights Act that could apply to their case and allow them to go home to have that, uh, that case struck down. And Robert Kennedy then refers them to the ACLU. And in 1965, the ACLU petitions the court to strike down that former ruling, but the court in Virginia is like, no. But then they say, all right, let's take it up, you know, the flagpole to the Supreme Court. Right. And Chief Justice Earl Warren basically said that the act, the uh, Racial Integrity Act, serves no purpose but that of invidious racial discrimination, which is basically discrimination designed to oppress a particular group or brand its members as inferior. And this gets into the whole idea of things that seem okay, innocuous, acceptable now 
at a separate time, at a different time in the past, may have seemed like something terrible. Specifically, the street Supreme Court found that they were in violation of the 14th Amendment or the uh, the Equal Protection Clause. And there was a constitutional scholar uh, that, that talked about how this is a reflection of the way that the changing mindset of society changes in a way or has evolved that concept of the 14th Amendment and of that equal protection. Because if this case had come up, say, 100 years prior, when, yeah, equal protection for uh, for black people did not exist at that time, so how could the 14th Amendment apply to them in this case? But having moved forward to, you know, the late 60s, we have civil rights going on, there is a, a social tide that is turning, uh, then you could have that ruling come down. And so all of these anti-miscegenation laws are found unconstitutional. Right. Well, so then that takes us all the way to now with the uh, release of this Pew Research Center report, which shows how just how common uh, interracial marriages these days. And they found that about 15% of all new marriages in 2010 were between spouses of a different race or ethnicity, and that's up from 6.7% in 1980. Yeah, and I would argue that now the changes that we're seeing in these percentages, like we have, like legally, you know, the doors are open. And since then, it's been more of a journey of acceptance for interracial couples because it's not like the Supreme Court handed down that loving v. Virginia decision on June 12th, 1967. And suddenly everyone was like, oh, cool. Okay, let's Finally, all watch. Yeah. Guess who's coming to get dinner? And we can be just one big, happy, multi-ethnic family, right? No, but the good news is, is that uh, those perceptions are changing. Yeah, and to look at the percentages of just who's doing what, um, they the term marrying out, that's, you know, marrying out someone outside of your own race or ethnic, ethnic group, 28% of Asians married out in 2010, 26% of Hispanics, 17% of African Americans, and 9% of whites. Yeah, and uh, I know he said that there uh, was 15% of all new marriages, and that's new marriages in 2010 reached that uh, that all-time high. But then if you look at all marriages as one big pot, not just new marriages, uh, this is from 2010, they make up 8.4%, which is still, obviously, that's it's not... You know, a huge percentage, but uh, it's still up significantly from 1980 when it was only 3.2 percent. Uh, and then if we look down at gender patterns, there are some interesting things going on there as well. For instance, about 24 percent of all black male newlyweds in 2010 married outside of their race, compared with 9 percent of black female newlyweds, whereas the situation is flipped when it comes to Asian Americans. Right, yeah. 36% of Asian female newlyweds married outside their race compared with just 17% of Asian male newlyweds. And economically, the uh, the annual earnings of interracial couples are about the same as the median earnings of, I guess, what did you call that, same race? Married same, in, married, whether they're marrying in or marrying okay, out. Okay, yeah. so married out couples, married in couples, all making about the same thing. But um, there are some 
some differences when you further break that down into uh, into different races and ethnicities. Yeah, it turns out that uh, white slash Asian couples. So when one is one person's white, one person's Asian, the they have the highest median combined annual earnings. Yeah, that's seventy thousand nine hundred and fifty two dollars. And it's not entirely surprising because when it comes to couples that marry in. Uh, Asians again may make the most money, sixty-two thousand dollars average. Yeah, followed by white couples. So I guess you put them together, and they make seventy thousand oh, dollars. And a, and a lot of times that is attributed to, uh, I guess, education, background, things like that. Uh, regionally, twenty-two percent of all newlyweds uh, in Western states married out, and fourteen percent in the South. You know, we think about, uh, you know, maybe like the South not being as interracial friendly, but in, indeed, uh, maybe because of more racial diversity in the South. I don't know. Don't call me an ethnographer. Uh, followed by uh, 13% in Northeast and 11% in the Midwest. And Hawaii is quite the hub. So, yeah, in Hawaii, rate of 42% of uh, interracial marriages between 2008 and 2010. But I would argue that more so than just basic demographics in terms of uh, really the significance of this dial shifting in terms of uh, the rise of interracial marriage is how our public acceptance of interracial relationships have changed. And according to these Pew statistics, 43% say that people of different races marrying each other has been a change for the better. Now, 11% say that that has been a change for the worst. Uh, and 44% say, hey, you know what, it makes it does make a difference. Yeah. The people who are more likely to see interracial marriage in a positive light include minorities, younger adults, the college-educated, people who refer to themselves as liberal, and people living in the Northeast or the West. And for just a couple more percentages, 63% of people in this 2012 survey said it would be fine if a family member married out of their race and 35% said a member of their immediate family or a close relative is currently married to someone of a different race. So if we are not ourselves, we tend to know people. We usually think it's fine. It's only a a minority, that 11%, who still take a negative view of it. And I would assume that that 11% might be a a generational difference. Yeah. Those are probably older people who remember and live through the times when it wasn't okay for, yeah. for us to all get along. Well, I think an interesting case study in it being acceptable or not comes from Alabama. Yes. they Alabama has a history. And in 1999... The Alabama Senate voted to repeal the state's constitutional prohibition against interracial marriage. Yeah, I mean, the, what, what that means is not that interracial marriage was illegal in Alabama. Obviously, like, once the Supreme Court handed down that 67 decision, like, yes, you could get, uh, married anywhere, but it was still on the books, hanging out on the books. Yeah. And, uh, it didn't, it didn't go. Yeah, um, State Representative Phil Krigler at the time said that he personally was opposed to interracial marriage, but he voted for the repeal basically because 
it wasn't enforced. Like the prohibition of interracial marriage wasn't enforced, so he'll go ahead and vote for it. Fine. And then there's state representative Alvin Holmes, because, you know, so here's Krigler saying, well, it's not enforced anyway. But state representative Alvin Holmes, who's the one who really pushed for the repeal for years, said that in parts of rural Alabama, probate judges were still refusing to issue marriage licenses to some interracial couples. Right. And this, I mean, this is something that still happens. There was um, a story, and not just in Alabama. And we should also mention, too, for our uh, you know, listeners in Alabama who are like, wait, no, <laughs> um, that public opinion polls found that a majority of uh, Alabama voters would definitely be in support of uh, the state repealing that. Um, but this was reported in the Christian Science Monitor in October 2009 uh, of a Louisiana justice of the peace who refused to marry a white woman and a black man because he believed children of an interracial marriage would suffer socially. And we will get into that misguided claim as well. Um, so there are, unfortunately, still these these pockets of racist fear, you know, to call call it what it is between um, intermarriage. But uh, for for one one more bit of information where interracial marriage has actually gone down, one group that's gone down with is again with Asian Americans. Yeah. So we mentioned that the highest percentage of people marrying outside their race is Asians. But that 28% of Asians who married out in 2010 is actually down from 31% in 2008. And so there's all these like theories being batted around like, uh, this one New York Times writer said that there's a resurgence of interest in language and ancestral traditions. But, uh, Wall Street Journal writer Jeff Yang in April 2012 disputes that. And he said that, A, it's more about shared experiences and backgrounds, not so much that you're going to marry someone just because you guys can speak a language or have uh, shared ancestry. He also says that there's just more Asian people in this country now. He pointed out that Asian Americans were the fastest growing ethnic group in the United States from 2000 to 2010. They grew by 46 percent. So so he's saying, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not so much. Uh, of, you know, we're all learning Mandarin and taking an interest and, yeah, then that's just one example for, you know, uh, for this large swath of, uh, people and ethnic backgrounds I'm talking about. But, uh, he said it's probably more a fact that there are simply more of us. Right. And he cites sociologist C.N. Lee, who found that since 2006, the frequency of inter-Asian marriage, so not just a Chinese person marrying another Chinese person, but you know, maybe someone of Thai descent marrying someone of Filipino descent, that kind of thing. Basically, he says that uh, they're not necessarily marrying, quote, their particular flavor of Asian American. And so because of this, inter-Asian marriage has risen by more than 8% among all Asian Americans and more than 15% among Asians raised here in the U.S. But to transition to uh, to the next thing that we need to touch on. There was a story in the Washington Post uh, kind of linked to this rise of interracial marriage. It was an article on the also rise of uh, biracial and multiracial children as well. And uh, they were talking about a first-generation Vietnamese woman who was married to 
a black man, and she was telling the Washington Post reporter about how her six-year-old daughter had started asking questions of, you know, why her her skin looked different than her mom's, and the different kind of questions that they were starting to have to confront with this. And um, so that leads us to this issue of, well, what about the kids? Because I feel like that has been the, you know, the politely racist undertone question of, well, you know, well, you don't need, you know, we don't need to have interracial marriage because then these kids won't understand their, their identity. Who will they be? What box will they check? Exactly. Yeah, this goes back to the Louisiana Justice of the Peace that Kristen mentioned earlier and the quote-unquote tragic mulatto stereotype. Basically like, yeah, these kids won't know who they are. They'll get bullied because they won't fit in with one race group or another race group. Like, they won't know where they fit. But the thing is, (laughs) with a greater acceptance of interracial marriage comes a greater acceptance of multiracial and biracial children. And there is definitely a movement. There was one article that we read about uh, students, was it College of Maryland, University of Maryland? I think so. Um, where they were forming a group to to lend support, trade stories, you know, talk about like weird things that people ask them like, what are you? So I think there is a greater movement towards acceptance in that arena, too. Yeah, and props to the U.S. Census as well, because guess what? You can now check as many boxes as you want, because I don't think that for most Americans, really, if you go back and trace your heritage, one box would correctly apply. Right. And uh, so, you know, I mentioned college students. Uh, a New York Times article in January 2011 said that students moving through college right now include the largest group of mixed race people ever to come of age in the U.S. And they say, you know, it's not tragic like that stereotype that many young adults of mixed backgrounds are rejecting the color lines in favor of a more fluid sense of identity. And uh, it's uh, interesting to see the different interpretations of that rejection of the color lines, as you put it, because, uh, you know, optimistically it's saying, hey, we maybe we are transcending race. We often hear the phrase like living in a post-racial era, which can be debated ad, ad nauseum. And then there's a pessimistic side saying, well, this is only going to add more stratification because now we're going to have these subcategories of these categories, and that's going to only make it even worse. And then sociologists uh, seem oddly concerned as well that grouping all multiracial people together is going to gloss over differences in their circumstances. But really, that sounds like sociologists just being like, hey, we're going to have to do more work <laughs> now. I don't want to do that. Although I love sociology. No offense to sociologists out there. I'm sure you are all hardworking. But yeah, really, nobody nobody needs to worry t- too terribly much, I think, because uh, a 2008 study of 182 mixed-race California high schoolers found that these kids really didn't focus on exclusionary features like skin color or hair texture when talking about themselves. They really seemed to look at their unique heritage as a positive. They, you know, it, it made them unique. It, the, as the writer says, you know, these kids can put one foot in one group, one foot in another group, and that sort of serves to possibly buffer them from, you know, negative consequences of feeling, as they say, feeling tokenized. Mm-hmm. So, the whole excuse of, I don't want to grant you a marriage license or perform a ceremony because you're black and you're white and your kids might suffer. Well, yeah. And, and then also, if there's anything, too, that we have learned from 
the podcast research that we have done on on parenting topics and child outcomes is that you you can't you can't narrow a, a child outcome down to one single dependent variable that's going to change the entire equation. Yeah. You know, the color of your skin is not going to say, well, you know, well, you you don't look exactly like your mom and dad, so sorry, tough road to hoe ahead. No, not at all. And really the fact of the matter is the the broader the social acceptance continues to become, then I think that this, we're going to look back in 20, 50 years, and that's going to be a moot point, this whole idea of potential negative child outcomes. Yeah, exactly. It's an it's an outdated argument. Because, yeah, the children grow up and become normal adults with normal adult problems that aren't necessarily related to what color their parents are, right. what color their skin is. And I know we kind of mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but can you think of a better landmark case to strike down like the unconstitutionality of interracial or anti-interracial marriage laws, but loving v. Virginia. Yep. Doesn't that make your heart just a little bit warmer? Or wait, would that make you unhealthy? <laughs> Does that mean I've got a fever? <laughs> I don't know. A fever for love. A fever for love for everyone. Uh, so so that's it. I feel like we, we just offered a snapshot. There's so much more that we could talk about. But for now, this is the this is where we are in 2012 with interracial marriage. So I want to hear from folks out there who have uh, maybe confronted this, who have dealt with this, uh, who are in interracial relationships. Uh, People from, also from other countries who might be listening, uh, how this, our social situation here compares to what's going on where you are. Let us know. Momstuff at Discovery. Dot com is where you can send your letter. And first, before we get to your listener mail, we have a quick word from Netflix, who kindly brought us this episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You. So for a limited time, listeners of Stuff Mom Never Told You can head over to Netflix.com slash stuff and browse their enormous library of movies and television shows and get a free trial membership. Uh, and it's, we were thinking that Stuff Mom Never Told You listeners might enjoy going to Netflix.com slash mom and looking at... How stuff works. That's right. If you go into the documentary section, they do offer the how stuff works from the Discovery Channel. It is a, a series of shows based on the cool stuff that we do at How Stuff Works. So don't delay because titles are subject to availability, but head on over to Netflix.com slash mom so that you can get your free trial membership. Now back to our letters. And here's a letter from Betty about our Femphobia podcast. She uh, she wanted to share some perspective. She says, first, the context. I am nearly 60 years old and was an adolescent and young adult during the boom of the second wave of feminism. Yes, we pretty much loathed all things feminine, such as ruffles, high heels, and yes, pink. As the years have gone by, I have come to understand a few things, one of which is that I was at a loss as to how to be a woman. I didn't know what it meant to be a feminist, autonomous, accomplished, and still female. 
We didn't have many role models and were casting about for answers, and we couldn't figure out how physical attractiveness could possibly be a part of the equation. Today, I am much more comfortable in my own skin and much less hasty to judge people's personal taste. It is now easier for me to separate appearances from substance and to embrace womanliness. I first began to feel truly feminine when I became pregnant in my early 30s, and for the first time, I started wanting to wear jewelry and to look pretty. Not only that, I felt beautiful, which was a new sensation to me. And right when, by conventional standards, I probably looked my least magazine cover attractive. So now I am more tolerant, especially of young women who are still on that road to self-definition. It's not easy to do, and no one can do it for you. If a girl chooses polka dots, sparkles, glitz, and even cartoonishness, I smile indulgently, no longer assume anything about the beliefs or attitudes she holds below the surface. The only thing I disparage now in the appearance of young girls is over-sexualization. Not because it is or is not in accordance with my personal taste, but because I feel they are demeaning themselves. It breaks my motherly heart. Too bad I didn't start feeling comfortable in my own skin back when my skin was still lovely. Here I am growing long in the tooth and finally making an effort to look pretty. But I still ha- but I still hate pink. There is no accounting for taste. So thank you, Betty. Well, I've got one here from Julia, and this is in response to an episode we did a while ago on whether or not women can ask out men, or just the idea of like women dating a little more aggressively. And she writes, I'm answering your call for thoughts on women doing the asking in dating situations. I can't speak for lesbians, but I can speak for hetero and bisexual ladies. In the bisexual community, the problem of asking women out comes up so often it's a joke. There were like two sheep sidling up next to each other, no one making eye contact, each one hoping that if we just position ourselves in close proximity, we'll magically end up on a date. And how easy would it be if that's how this worked? She says, many bisexual women don't come out until later in life and have already spent a few years getting asked out by men. Asking people out is a muscle that has to be exercised often. Women are just out of practice. Since I came out as bi, I've been working out, but it's not easy. You mentioned in the podcast the fact that women worry more about the feelings of the other. I found it pretty easy to ignore that impulse with men. Men generally like being asked out, or at least they'll more often tell you directly if they don't. But if I'm asking out a woman, my empathy anticipates her empathy, and I worry double that she will think something unflattering about me when I ask her out. But she won't tell me, and she'll try to be nice, because it's probably what I'd do. We second-guess ourselves a lot where dating is concerned, and I'm finding the most success when I take a page out of my hetero male friend's books. In the same way that straight women often need a gay male friend to give them a different point of view and some confidence, bi women can benefit a lot from a guy friend who's not dating material or, at most, a friend with benefits. Just make sure your buddy doesn't creep out the ladies and is magnanimous when you call dibs. So, a wing dude. That's That's what I'm hearing. Well, thanks to Julia and Betty and everyone else who has written in. Momstuff at discovery.com is our email address. Can't wait to hear from everybody. And can't wait to see you over at Facebook, where you can find us. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Momstuff Podcast. And you can follow us on Tumblr as well at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And don't forget to make yourself smarter during the week by heading over to our website. It's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 